are guns the problem? I mean, that seems to be the consensus among a lot of talking heads, activists, politicians within the United States. After all, they look at other countries. They look at reduced murder rates. They look at uh, reduced gun violence. They look at fewer mass shootings. And they come to the conclusion that it must be, at least in part, and a significant part, guns, right? Guns are the problem. That is the argument that they continually make. But we're going to ask the question today. We're going to ask some very, very important questions today about this issue. So for instance, we're going to add, we're going to answer what is an assault weapon? What do they mean when they say an assault weapon or a weapon of war, right? We're going to ask the question, who commits the majority, like the vast majority of instances of gun violence? What, what exactly are those instances and who's actually doing it? We're going to ask the question of where is the gun violence taking place within the United States. We're gonna say why, we're gonna ask the question, we're gonna answer the question, why has there been an increase in mass shootings, right? That's something that we're gonna speculate on here in a way because I think it's very relevant to the overall argument. And then we're also gonna say, um, we're gonna ask the question and hopefully answer it satisfactorily for anybody that's curious. Is there any good reason for a private citizen to own the sort of firearms that are currently banned in many other countries around the world and that people are increasingly attempting to ban within the United States. So we're going to ask and answer all of these questions on this episode of Making the Argument, brought to you by Good Ranchers. Welcome, everyone. There have been so many attempts on part of the left to take away our guns over the last couple of months in states across the country. So I'm very excited for us to connect on this topic today. We've had a couple of folks in our community chat ask us to do this exact topic, and so thank you for that. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description. Join our community chat there. We'd love to get to know you. All right, as always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, and uh, I'm currently dealing with this issue right now in Richmond, Virginia, because we have several bills uh, relating to this particular topic, and we'll probably discuss some of those because they're relevant beyond the borders of the Commonwealth. With us also is our resident historian and mostly benevolent warlord in training, Christian Hines. Master Hines, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Hamilton and I have both previously worked for two of the largest pro-gun organizations in the country, so I think this is going to be a pretty interesting episode. Well, you're giving away your bias already. <laughs> and then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Let's get right to it. Okay. Now, you've probably noticed that um, my beautiful bride, Tina, queen of the bees, couldn't be here today. And I am very upset about that because she is very, very vocal on this topic. And it's interesting because a lot of people don't always expect women to have very, very pronounced opinions on this. Tina does, and she has some really good reasons uh, for it. And I'm going to talk a little bit as we as we go through this um, entire exercise. But the first things, first things first, I want to define our terms because so much of the conversation that we see going on within the United States right now has to do with things like assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and things of that nature. And I know because we're, we are having this debate in Virginia right now where a bill has passed both the House and the Senate which would ban assault weapons. And a lot of people hear this. So for instance, if you're already a pretty hardcore pro 2A person, um, you know, in, in Virginia, the Virginia Constitution, we have Article 1, Section 13, which is kind of like the Virginia version of, of the Second Amendment. And if you're someone that, you know, kind of deeply feels that this is a fundamental right, then you probably don't care when they say, you know, a pistol, a shotgun, a rifle, or an assault weapon. You probably don't care. That definition doesn't, doesn't bother you. However, for a lot of other people and for a lot of people in our international audience, when you say assault weapon, they're thinking to themselves, oh my gosh, maybe, maybe I understand you having your shotgun for hunting or even your deer rifle or whatever it is, but why does any citizen need an assault weapon? And the first question I always ask back is, what do you think an assault weapon is? 
and and almost instinctively they will say, oh well, that's that's like you know one of these weapons of war. It's it's like what the army carries, where you you know you you have a belt-fed machine gun. They don't say that, but they'll say you have a machine gun and you can just sit there and press the button and fire thousands of rounds, you know, uh, in, in in seconds. Um, it, it's those guns that are sitting on top of of tanks or on vehicles where you just depress the trigger and and it's just you know chaos and mayhem all over the place. And and the thing is, is that <clears throat> that might fall within the definition, right, of, of an assault weapon. But interestingly enough, it's a lot broader than that. So to give you an idea, if you look at the assault weapons definition in Virginia, it could be something as simple as this: it could be a semi-automatic rifle. Right, so that means when you pull the trigger once, it shoots one bullet. You pull the trigger, one bullet. That's semi-automatic, all right? And then what it does is it automatically chambers another round, right? So you could have that rifle, and if it has an external magazine, which means it's a magazine that you can you can take the magazine out and you can put it in, right? Now, some rifles have what they call internal magazines, which is actually a part of the rifle itself, right? As opposed to something that detaches. So you have an external magazine, and um, and that's it. So you got a you got a rifle, external magazine, and you put a pistol grip on it. Now it's an assault rifle, right? You didn't change anything with respect to how many rounds the the weapon can fire. You didn't change anything with the respect to the type of rounds. You didn't do any. It's not full auto. You didn't do any of that. But now it's an assault rifle. Why? You added that pistol grip. Let's say you didn't add the pistol grip. Let's just say you you made the stock adjustable right? Oh, now it's an assault rifle. Let's say you put a forward grip, right? So you maybe, maybe you have an easier time controlling the firearm when you, if you hold it like this, right? With your, if your hand on the pistol grip and a, and your other hand on the forward grip, maybe you control it better that way. Oh, now it's an assault weapon. So I, I, I give you these illustrations because I want people to understand just how arbitrary these definitions are. Right, if you have a rifle that has a bayonet lug, which means a bayonet is that knife that you can put on the end of a rifle. Right, you have a bayonet lug on it, semi-automatic rifle. Oh, now it's an assault rifle. Now it's an assault weapon. Right, the, these things are arbitrary. They really are. Um, you, you'll see the same thing when they talk about high-capacity magazines. Some people say a high-capacity magazine is anything more than twenty rounds. Some people say it's fifteen. In Virginia, they're trying to say it's more than ten. More than ten rounds. That's high capacity now. And so the other definition, or excuse me, the other term that they'll use a lot, which there's no definition for is weapons of war. So the, the, the delegate that was carrying the bill in Virginia to ban all of this is a former combat veteran, right? He, I think he was an armor officer and then I think he worked in Intel, right? I was a special forces weapons sergeant. We had quite the conversation on the house floor about this issue because he kept using this. He, when you talk about this, he used weapons of war. We don't need these weapons of war. Our schools don't need to be war zones. Okay, great. I don't, I don't think a school should be a war zone. But when you say weapons of war, you, you should be experienced enough to know that a weapon of war can be anything. It can be anything. So that's a, that's a useless definition when it comes to actually understanding the problem, but it is a very useful marketing tactic. And that's the first thing I want everyone to understand. If you're, you know, if, if you're passionate about this issue, if you're just trying to figure out why it's so important uh, or why it's so important to Americans in general, Understand that a lot of the terms that you hear thrown around, weapon of war, assault weapon, you might have an image in your mind that bears no resemblance to what we're actually talking about when it comes to the sort of weapons that are available to go and purchase within the United States. And so the question you might ask is, okay, well, if, you know, that, Gene Nick, 
adding a pistol grip to a semi-automatic rifle doesn't seem like it makes it into the, the, the weapon of war I had envisioned in my mind. You're right, it doesn't. So why do they describe it that way? Because they want the imagery in your head. They, they don't want you to be fully informed about what this actually means. They don't want you to be fully informed of what sort of uh, rifles or, or might be banned as a result of this. They want you to be scared. They want you to have this imagery of something that in your mind, you probably think there's no justification for, for a citizen owning. Now we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that question about justification for citizens owning firearms later in the show. But I just wanna, I wanna make sure that we all understand what we're talking about, right? So let's move on to the next question. So that gives you a little bit of, of insight into you know, these terms, assault weapon, weapons of war. The weapon of war has no definitional value whatsoever. The assault weapon is completely arbitrary, completely arbitrary. This is the point I like to make all the time. Um, again, as a special forces weapons sergeant, I probably had more exposure to a variety, a wide variety of weapon systems from pistols, shotguns, rifles, submachine guns, machine guns, crew serve machine guns, recoilless rifles, mortars, rocket propelled grenades, like all of it. I shot them all. I worked on several of them. Um, I, I used some in combat, right? So I've got a wider, and I'm telling you right now, never once have I seen a weapon assault anybody. I've never once seen a, a weapon system of any kind, full auto or otherwise. I've never seen one of them just randomly decide to assault anyone. Weapons don't commit acts of assault. People commit acts of assault, and sometimes they use weapons, and sometimes they use firearms. So let's just, let's get all that in there. So we're at least being intellectually honest with one another on the conversation of what we're talking about, right? Now let's, let's really get into the meat of, you know, again, kind of a couple of questions here. What is actually happening? And, and we're going to specifically focus on the United States. What is happening in the United States with respect to gun violence? Where is it happening, right? Why is it happening? And, and we're going to talk a little bit too about why do why are mass shootings on the rise? And, and is that, are all of those things as a result of easy access to guns? Is it gun ownership that are causing all these problems? All right, so let's go ahead and let's go ahead and look at uh, kind of that first question. Christian, you've got a lot of, um, you know, data and clips ready to go. Uh, what's the first one you want to bring up to tackle? Sure. So the first thing that I wanted to bring up was um, this study that was put out by Pew Research about basically some some hidden statistics about quote-unquote gun violence or gun deaths in the United States because that, that's a very broad term as well, right? You just brought up that like assault weapon, weapon of war. These are kind of loaded terms. Well, gun violence is another term that quite frankly, I think the left has has kind of monopolized for marketing purposes, but that's a really broad term if you think about it. Most people have this idea that gun violence is a school shooter, for example. And that's mm -hmm. true. School shootings count as gun violence, but what also counts as gun violence is suicide, right? Somebody, somebody shoots themselves in the middle of their own home, let's say like in the woods somewhere, 10 miles away from the rest of civilization, that still gets counted as gun violence. Yeah. despite the fact that there's only one victim and it is the perpetrator themselves. Well, and, and what, sorry, go, go, go ahead, yeah. Nick, go ahead. I was just saying, and what you find, in fact, if you scroll down here a little bit, you see this in the report. What you find is that the majority of gun violence in the United States is people committing suicide. 54% of all gun-related deaths, of all gun violence in the United States are suicides. This has actually been an ongoing thing for quite a while, but a lot of people don't seem to understand this. Again, most people have this idea that the United States is awash in this gun violence epidemic and that people are just, you know, being shot to pieces left and right. And, and you know what? In part, I think it's actually because elements of the right also help perpetuate this because 
let's be honest, and as we're going to get to, there's certain places in America that have more shootings than other places, right? And so it's not just the left that I think helps perpetuate this idea that everybody's being, you know, at risk of being shot in the United States. There's kind of a perverse incentive for both sides to encourage this perception for completely different reasons. But the truth is, is that, again, 54% of all gun-related deaths in the United States are suicides. And this is something that you were telling me before we even started recording that, well, if that's the case, then the next question you should be asking is, would any type of gun control whatsoever, doesn't matter what the law is or what the bill is, would any type of legislation actually stop that from happening? Well, I think the the important thing to understand, and this is always whenever we talk about violence, right, and, and the left focuses a lot on gun violence. Fair enough. I, I always like to point out to him, it's like, okay, well, if if we if we let's just say we solved suicide. Let's say we solved that to where nobody wanted to commit suicide. You you would cut gun deaths, you would cut gun violence statistics by more than half overnight just that way. Now, here's the crazy part. Let's say you don't solve suicide rates. Let's say the same number of people that want to commit suicide that are determined to do so continue to do so, but they use something else. You've also cut your gun violence rates by over half. And so one, one of the problems that I have with this whole conversation when we put the when we put the emphasis on a particular type of violence is that sometimes we're ignoring the fact that the underlying reasons for why the violence is taking place would remain. It's just that now people would have to find a different tool in order to, to carry out the violence. And, and specifically, with what you need to understand is gun laws always by definition are more likely to target or, um, or affect people who obey the law than people who don't obey the law, right? We still have gun violence in places where they've outlawed guns. The difference is, is that it's almost never a situation where somebody's defending themselves with a firearm. And that's another thing that's really important to remember about gun violence, because in, in a lot of these cases, and with Pew, they're primarily looking at deaths associated with, with guns. So the majority are um, suicides. You still have murders, but you also have justifiable homicide. But that still works its way into the gun statistics. So for instance, let's say someone is coming in, let's say you own a, a store in a very, very dangerous part of town, and you've gotten beaten up several times and, and threatened by people that rob your store. And this isn't hypothetical. My father was a a homicide detective in LAPD. And before that, he worked the beat for 11 years. And he will tell you that they had people that, you know, they, they had to, they had to always try to be in that vicinity or in that area, but you, the police can't be everywhere at once. So what happens? Okay. Store owner gets a firearm. The next time somebody comes in to hurt him and rob him, he tells him to leave. They threaten him. He shoots him. That's also a gun violence statistic, right? So, now let, me, now let me show you the dark side of this. If the bad guys come in to rob him and beat him and they beat him to death with, say, a baseball bat or they stab him to death, your gun violence statistic goes down. So have you improved gun violence? Yes, you've improved gun violence. Does that mean you've gotten a better outcome? No. Another example I like to use is what happens when you have the victim of domestic violence, right? She has been beaten to an inch of her life and she finally gets to the point where she says, no more, I'm done, right? You know, you got a 125 pound female, you got a 200 pound dude. There's no way she can defend herself. So what does she do? She gets a firearm and this time boyfriend comes over, he's drunk. He starts to try to beat her and she shoots him. Your gun violence statistics just went up. But was that a positive outcome or a negative outcome given the circumstances? I would argue it's a positive one 
But if all you're looking at is gun violence statistics, well, you get to say that gun violence is on the rise. Now, let's say you let's say legally you say, no, 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 she's not allowed to buy that gun. She's got to wait 10 days or she can't buy it at all or she can't own it. And now the boyfriend comes over drunk and beats her to death. Your gun violence statistic just improved. Is the result preferable? Would you have rather had that result where the domestic violence victim is now beaten to death because she didn't have the means to be able to defend herself against her drunk boyfriend, right? Is that the outcome that you wanted? Well, if all you're focused on is gun violence statistics, your, your statistics improved. And this is, this is one of the problems that we see whenever we look at these generalized statistics is that we're not actually following individual cases because once you start to open up to understand what's happening on an individual level, all of a sudden things skew quite a bit. The same thing goes with the murder rates. So when we look at the murders, so for a second, let's just acknowledge that with suicides, that is incredibly tragic, but telling everyone you're not allowed to own a firearm doesn't necessarily deal with the underlying problems that could lead that person to choose a different method or mechanism to commit suicide, right? Let's, let's say we're, we're not talking about any of the justifiable homicides. That's where someone uses a firearm to actually defend themselves and kill somebody, right? Could be a police officer, could be a citizen, could be the, the domestic violence victim I just talked about, could be the shop owner. Let's take all those out. Now let's focus exclusively on those gun deaths, which I think occupy most people's minds when they're thinking about gun violence statistics. And that's the sort of people that are using a firearm to harm another person in a criminal act. Right? They're not defending themselves. They're not committing suicide. They're, they're actively using a firearm to hurt somebody. In Pew, something pops up that the left likes to use all the time when they talk about murders, right? Mm -hmm. So let, let's remove, I mean, they're going to show you broader um, crime statistics, but if we, if we scroll down, we look at this, what we've seen is one, there has been an increase not only in suicides yeah. uh, in the United States uh, over the last several years, but there's also been an increase in murders. Yeah, so by raw numbers, obviously this is not per capita, which I'll show in just a second, but by raw yeah. numbers, there's arguably more suicides today, and this actually gets into a, a deeper discussion that we're gonna get to in this podcast, but there's there's more suicides today than at any point since 1968, and, and, and possibly even before. I don't have the raw numbers going back to the 40s and 30s, but I do have the per capita numbers that I'll show in a second. But when you consider population growth, it's not hard to to conclude that there's, by raw numbers, more suicides in the United States today than at any point in American history. Likewise, by raw numbers, the number of murders in the United States are also at virtually an all-time high, even higher than at the peak of the 1980s and 90s when, when there was basically this, like, murder epidemic that was going on in the country where, you know, crime was kind of through the roof, especially at the, in the late 80s, early 90s. And then when you look at, at it, you know, from like a per capita basis, right? When you look at the suicide rate and the murder rate rather than just by raw numbers, because obviously the country has grown. The population increases, yes. yeah. When you look at it by by murder rate and suicide rate, what you see is, is that even there, it's still kind of disturbing. Although it's worth noting that the murder rate in the United States has absolutely skyrocketed since 2019. Like, like we had gone through a 30-year period of the murder rate in the United States dropping like a rock. The country was getting safer from the 80s all the way up until 2019. By 2019, the murder rate was basically virtually at an all-time low or close to an all-time low. And then something crazy happened after 2020. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that, quite frankly, left-wing you know, DAs 
district attorneys yeah. basically stopped enforcing the law and not just stopped enforcing the law. You told me before we started recording this podcast that there's a bill in Virginia to just straight up let criminals out of prison. And I don't just mean criminals in the sense that like, oh, you stole a candy bar, right? I, I mean like violent criminals, including we, people that have committed murder, if I'm correct. Don't do, to give you an idea, when this bill, we have what we call the second look bill. Now I will, I will say this, they have amended it quite a bit. It's still a bad bill, but it's nowhere near as bad as it initially was. When they first submitted this bill, you know, rapists, rapists would get an automatic second look at 15 years. And and they could they could be let out if you if you had the right you know uh, combination of parole board or judge or or, or whatnot. Um, same thing with murderers. I mean, so again, we're not talking about people that got a marijuana charge, right? Like those people aren't in jail anyway. Um, we're, we're talking about serious offenders, the, some of the worst of the worst. And they took some of that out and they amended some other things. They still made it's still a horrible bill. It's still a horrible bill. But this was just the idea of like I mean, it, it was amazing how. You know, one, once again, we're, we're going through this thing where it's like, gosh, there's a crime spike. Why is that? Okay, well, maybe it has something to do with the fact that you're not prosecuting crime. Um, when crime does take place, you're making it harder to incarcerate someone, especially re even repeat offenders. And then when someone does get into jail, you look for ways to let them out earlier. And so if you're recidivism, right, which, which recidivism is someone goes to jail, they get arrested for a crime, and then what's their likelihood of reoffending, right, and doing it again? When your recidivism rate goes through the roof and you're letting people out, well, then you're you're. It, it's not hard to predict what will happen, and and the problem that we have, and and we've seen this in Virginia, we started letting a lot of people out early for good behavior. Well, guess what? A, a high percentage, like I think it's like thirty percent of them, have been rearrested for reoffending. And and it all sounds nice when you're you're thinking, gosh, you know, we believe in second chances. Okay, yes, yeah, so do I. I believe in second chances as well. But a part of the reason why we have punishments within our prison system is because when you when you engage in an act of violence, especially uh, especially when you engage in an act of violence against an innocent person, well, then you're demonstrating something about your reasoning and your and your your people skills that suggests to us that maybe you need to go into timeout, right? You don't you don't get to be with the general population if you're going to hurt people, and and this is one of the craziest things we have seen in Virginia this year, and this goes into kind of what is happening. Actually, I'm gonna, I'm going to save that. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna not going to tell it? you that yet. Okay, then I've got I'm not going to tell you that because something crazy is going on, but okay. I just wanted I, to answer to Christian's point about why we're seeing this increase in murder. If that's the case, then I want to read just a little bit more from this, this Pew article because it's going gonna, it's gonna to feed into some of the other problems that, that are yeah. coming up here. So, so Pew says that there was a record almost 49,000 total gun deaths in 2021, which is a shocking 23% increase since 2019. And then it goes on to say gun murders in particular have climbed sharply during the pandemic. This was, you know, immediately post-COVID, right? Um, increasing 45% between 2019 and 2021, while the number of gun suicides rose 10% during that time span. That's honestly not surprising as well because mm -hmm. this feeds into the, the fact that we have, we have a mental health pandemic right now in this country. Like yeah. the, the suicide rate, in this country, this gets into the, the per capita stuff, right? Because Pew also goes on to say that, you know, while the population is growing and so on a per capita basis, the number of gun deaths is at its highest rate since the 1990s, but it's still well below the peak of the per capita gun deaths that took place in this country in recorded history, which was in 1974. So the, the, the murder rate is much higher than it was, say, five, 10 years ago, but it's 
and and it's it's at the same level of, of where it was in the 1990s, but it's still below where it was in the 70s, which was it yeah. was really bad in the 70s. Well, the and, suicide rate though has gone through the roof, and yeah. this this chart that I need to show you guys is, I mean, th this goes all the way up to I believe 2023, and um, actually I think it goes up to 2022. So it, it's a couple years out of date, but it, I, I assure you it has not gotten any better. Unfortunately, what you see is that. The suicide, this goes all the way back to 1900, the suicide rate for the last 120 years. And what you see is, is that post-World War II, the suicide rate was relatively low. It actually, it, it was rising until the 1980s, but then it started falling from the, from the late 70s, early 80s until about 2000. The suicide rate fell like a rock and it eventually hit like an all-time low. And then over the last 20 years, the suicide rate has been steadily climbing. And now, today the suicide rate in the United States is higher than at any point since the Great Depression. And mm. if you look at this chart, you see these two massive peaks that took place almost 100 years ago. The first one was in the 1910s and early 1920s. So, so you know, the, the, the height of the progressive era. And we all know what was taking place during that time period. It was rampant alcoholism more than anything yeah. else, right? World this was leading one, into... Right? Rampant alcoholism. This was leading into the tempest movement. There was... I mean, it was, th th there were some social problems that were different than what was going on today. And that led to a bunch of deaths of despair. Um, and then you had the Great Depression, which obviously, I mean, you see the spike, the all-time peak is at the height of the Great Depression, right? And so you had, again, And to give me an idea for anybody unrest. that can't see the screen, that's 22 suicides per 100,000 people. That, that's the rate we're talking. And then it bottomed out from this peak at the height of the Great Depression, right? It bottomed out in about 2000 and, you know, five or so, right? It, it bottomed out at about 10, right? So it was, it was, you know, well beneath half of what it was at the peak of the, of the Great Depression. But what you've seen over the last, again, 15, 20 years is an explosion in the suicide rate. It's higher than at any point in, in virtually in living memory, again, going all the way back to the Great Depression. And so the reason that I bring this up is because we already talked about how a majority of gun violence in the United States are actually suicides. So it's 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 actually more accurate to say that the United States has a suicide problem more than anything else. But that also feeds into the fact that it's actually not just a suicide problem because what it really is is a mental health problem. And what I mean well, by this is, is not a mental health problem in the way that the left categorizes it. What I mean is, is that it's not just mental health in the form of suicide driving gun violence. It's mental health in the form that Mass shootings were not a thing in American history. People don't have this idea unless they're they're a boomer or, or or older than that. If you're my age, you just kind of think that, oh, it's normal that every six months or so we hear on the news that there's a school shooting or there's some shooting at a mall or there's some active shooter incident. Uh, you know, there, there was one at the Kansas City Chiefs uh, victory parade for the yeah. Super Bowl that took place earlier this month, right? We just kind of think this is normal. But as Pew Research shows in this, um, in this chart here, this is not normal. No. This was not a thing before the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s. There's a reason why when Columbine happened, right? Like I was in, I was in high school when Columbine happened. Um, I mean, it was just, it was, it was amazing. No one could explain it. And, and, and everybody, there was documentaries written and, and I mean, several. And, and it was just this issue of like, oh my gosh, how do, we, how do we deal with this? How could something like this happen? And then there was a lot of theories with respect to not only what motivated the students because they left their little manifestos, but also 
um, copycats and things of that nature. They, before we get into the mass shooting though, Christian, I, I, wanna, I wanna back up just a little bit because okay. again, the mass shootings actually make up, even though they're the ones that are the most televised and, and for good reason, like we understand why there's so much attention associated with them because usually it's somebody dealing with significant mental health issues, um, targeting either, like targeting a vulnerable area, especially when it's something like a school or, or a church or something like that, right? But they also, sometimes it's nightclubs, it's a movie theater. Um, but, but typically they also tend to target things that are acknowledged as gun-free zones. And so we're, we're going to get into that as well. But but here's the thing I, I want I want everyone to understand. Um, a lot of the gun violence that is just straight murder, right? It, it's the image that you have in your head of, of what is going on and why it's taking place. Again, we're not talking about suicides. We're not talking about justified homicides. Um, we're not even talking about mass shootings because that usually has a different profile. Most of it is young men engaging in game violence, gang violence or other criminal activity, predominantly within inner cities, right? That, that's, where the, that's where the majority. Now, obviously there's, there's murders that take place in, in rural areas that are, are crime related. Sometimes it's crimes of passion. Sometimes it's, you know, just assault and battery or burglary or theft or, 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 or not, yeah, burglary. Um, a lot of it is also drug related because there's, yeah. there's a drug problem in rural America, just like there is in urban America. Yeah, a massive, but, a, but again, part of the reason why you have gun violence associated with drugs is managing the drug trade, right? It's the black market of, of, of drugs. And so you have gangs fighting over control of territory. Um, so I, I want people to understand that, it, again, when you look at the amount of murders that are taking place, it, it's not just a, I mean, when you say it's a, a small, uh, you know, a, a infinitesimal portion of the population. People are like, well, of course it is, but it's still a problem. Yes, it is. But what people need to understand is that it, it is largely a problem concentrated around certain activities and in certain activities, right? Or in certain areas. So the next thing that we're going to bring up is, you know, where is this happening? And when you look at, when you look at Pew Research here, it says gun deaths um, gun death rates varied widely by state in 2021. And when you look at this map, you say, ah, aha, see, we told you it's red states, right? It's Montana, it's Wyoming, it's Louisiana, it's Mississippi, it's Alabama, right? That's that's where you have your, your highest concentration, Alaska, right? That's where you have your highest concentration of gun deaths, Um in in 2021, that's where Pew's looking at us right now. Whereas you don't you don't have as many in in California, or you don't have as many in Virginia, or you don't have as many in New York, so or, or Minnesota. So clearly, this is a red state problem, which feeds into this argument that it must also be a gun problem because the states with with stricter gun laws, I mean, clearly by this map, aren't having the same problem. Let's go ahead and go into a little bit of why maybe that's that's not an accurate reflection. Here's the actual map of the raw numbers. This is the one instance that I can think of where per capita is actually a very misleading statistic. Yeah. And and we'll we'll get to why in just a second because here is the actual map. Yeah. This is the actual map. This is from the Crime Prevention Research Center that that calculated raw numbers of gun-related deaths and not just gun-related deaths, murders in the United mm -hmm. States. So again, not suicides. And that's actually an important thing to bring up because as you can see in this map, it does not look like the Pew map. It, 
No. They, they don't look the same, particularly these western states, New Mexico, Alaska, Yeah, you're looking at this Montana shit and going, oh my gosh, Montana's got this huge gun violence problem. The re no, what Montana has is a huge suicide problem. Yeah. Remember, this is gun deaths. Yeah. Which includes suicides. And we already talked about how 54% of all gun deaths are suicides. There's another map. I don't actually have it pulled up, but I'm, I'm going to. Oh, and don't forget this also includes, I, I believe, I don't know if this one includes, we'll have to look at it again. I think this one might include justifiable homicides as well. Uh, um, deaths that were accidental involved in law enforcement or under undetermined circumstances. So there you go. Um, because if it's involved in law enforcement, that could be a justifiable homicide. It could be. Yes. Yeah. And, and, so, um, the reason that I bring this up, especially with the Western states, is because I don't actually have the map for it, but if you were to look up the suicide rate by state and also by county in the United States, what you would see is a huge West-East divide. The mm -hmm. Western part of the United States, once you get West of the Great Plains, the Western part of the United States has a massive suicide crisis on its hands, especially um, states like Oregon, Washington State, Montana, Wyoming. They have a suicide crisis unlike anything that the East Coast is going through right now, to include economically depressed parts of the East Coast like Appalachia. Yeah. And, and so the reason that I bring this up is because what that's doing is, is that the suicide rate is really driving the whole, the whole narrative when it comes to these Western states, particularly these Western conservative states like Alaska, Montana, and Wyoming. So that explains the Western situation. So now the question is, okay, well, what about the South? Why does Missouri... Tennessee, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama all have really high um, rates of, of gun deaths on a per capita basis. Clearly, this is a red state problem. Well, no, not exactly. It's a blue city problem, and it's yeah. a blue county problem within red states. For example, and here's another statistic for you. The murder capital of the United States right now is St. Louis, Missouri. Missouri is a red state. My family's actually from St. Louis. I can assure you St. Louis is not a red city. <laughs> um, uh, St. Louis actually has a murder rate that's higher than any, any country in the world. The, the, the country right now, the murder capital of the world in terms of countries is currently Jamaica. St. Louis has a murder rate higher than Jamaica right now. And guess what? St. Louis is like a 70, 80% Democrat city. You know what else is, is like, like the, the, the top three um, and, and it kind of cycles between them depending on the year. The, the top three cities in the United States with the highest murder rate are in, in no particular order, although currently St. Louis is number one. It's St. Louis, um, New Orleans, and Memphis. All three of those cities are overwhelmingly, I don't mean like marginally, overwhelmingly Democrat. You're talking like yeah. 70, 80% Democrat. You you throw a stone and you will not hit a Republican in any, any of those cities. Or well, should I, some of these, uh, rather some should of these I say are, you'll shoot a bullet and you will not hit any Republican in any of these cities. Well, and the interesting part is you see similar things with respect to Los Angeles County in California. You see the same thing with uh, San Francisco area. You see the same thing with uh, Seattle area. You see the same thing with uh, Chicago, um, Detroit, New York City, Philadelphia, Detroit, like uh, all of these areas. Um, Washington, D.C. Yeah. Th these are all, these are all blue cities. And, and yeah, you can, you can point to Tennessee or you can point to areas in, in, um, you know, Texas or whatnot and say, well, okay, but, but these are red states. And, and we hear this a lot, but the, the argument will be, um, okay, well, yeah, that's why you have the higher murder rate in the blue city because it's a red state, because guns are so easy to get in red states. But the, the problem with that is, is that, okay, but if guns are the problem, 
Well, then why wouldn't the, like, let's say somebody leaves the city and they go buy it in a, in a rural county, or let's say somebody buys a gun in Indiana and takes it to Chicago or whatever else, then wouldn't you expect the place where the concentration of firearms are higher that so too would be the gun violence rates? But that's not the case. Again, they've got to, they've got to show you statistics by state in order to try to give you this impression that the real problem is these these red you know pro gun states. When in reality, is once you zoom into what's actually going on, whether it's a blue state or a red state, it's blue cities where the problem is taking place. It's where it's most pronounced. That's where the murders are taking place, overwhelmingly so. Heritage also has um, a, a really excellent article that they put out on this topic because it's so predominant that you see in the left where they talk about how, you know, gun violence in America is a red state problem. And so Heritage has this article titled Red State Murder Problem Becomes a Blue County Murder Problem. And they go on to explain some of the same things that we just talked about with that chart. For example, when you look at it by state, the homicide rate in the United States looks like, oh, well, you know, Trump states are where everybody's killing each other. But then when you look at it by U.S. county, what you see is literally the exact opposite, right? So, so the, the homicide rate by state, when you look at the 2020 election results, show that Trump states have a homicide rate of 6.48. This is, this is per 100,000, right? And Biden states have a homicide rate of 4.83. So clearly this means that blue America has the right idea and we need more gun control in order to make people safer, right? But then when you get into the county level results, right? So counties that voted for Trump versus counties that voted for Biden, you see a complete reversal. You see that red counties in America have a gun violence rate that's actually lower than the blue states. It's mm -hmm. 4.06. And then blue counties actually have a murder rate that's higher than the red states. It's 6.52. Yeah. So the problem becomes completely reversed once you zoom in even closer to when, where if, the violence is actually taking place. If you get the opposite results as the data becomes more granular, you know you were getting shammed with the other data. Yes, right? that's that, a good that's, way to put it. You know you're getting shammed. Is, is if, you, if, if, if they show you the big map and they say, oh my gosh, look at this, but then the closer you get into the granular, the more individualized the data becomes, it proves the opposite then you know that the first stats they showed you was marketing, not analysis, right? And that's really important to understand. Um, is this, you got another one here? Yeah, yeah, th this was the trend line. So this is another thing that people like to bring up that like, oh, you know, the, the gun violence rate is exploding in red states, you know, versus the rest of the country. And this is because they're making it easier for people to get guns. So remember when I brought up in the introduction that Hamilton and I have both previously worked for two of the biggest yeah. pro-gun groups in the United States. Neither of us have worked for the NRA. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and I know that there's plenty of gun people that don't like them. Uh, no, Hamilton worked for GOA and I previously worked for NAGR. This was many years ago. And anybody who's like really into gun culture in the United States or really into gun politics in the, in, politics in the United States has almost certainly heard of at least one of those two groups. And one of the things that the left uses in opposition to the work that those two groups do is, be, is both of those groups push what's called constitutional carry. Right, mm -hmm. which is constitutional carry is is the idea that the Second Amendment is your permit, and that you carry. shouldn't have to. Yes, you shouldn't have to apply for a permit, and usually, in many cases, pay a fine in order for you to exercise a constitutional right. We do not require you to get a permit from the government in order for you to tweet, for example. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> we, we don't we don't take a constitutionally protected right and then try to put some sort of government test or government requirement before you can execute that civil liberty or that that 
constitutionally protected right. Well, the left uses the massive expansion of constitutional carry that you've seen over the last 20 years, and you have seen it. 20 years ago, yeah. you know, 25 years ago, there was like one state, and ironically enough, it was actually Vermont that had constitutional carry. This is why it's also known as Vermont carry. Vermont has never had any sort of regulation on your your ability to conceal carry a firearm. If you if you can legally own and possess a firearm in that state, you can conceal carry it. That's always been the case. And then slowly, one by one by one, other states started to adopt this rule. I think Alaska was the next one. Wyoming was was quick on the list. And now you've gotten to a point where about half the country has constitutional carry. And what the left has done is looked at the expansion of constitutional carry and the fact that it is now in in many states, mostly red states, it is now easier for you to conceal carry today than it was, say, 20 years ago. They've used that with the trend line that you see here that shows that on paper, the murder rate within red states has grown over the last 20 years. They've argued that, oh, well, correlation equals causation here. And so the reason that you have this expansion in the in the murder rate in red states and you've seen a drop off in blue states is because red states have made it easier for you to get access to guns. And so therefore, more access to guns equals more murders. Well, there's two things that refutes this. First off is look at the counties again. And when you look at the counties, what you see is, is that the murder rate within red counties is at the same level of where it was 20 years ago, although it is rising just like everywhere else post-2020. But where it's rising more than anywhere else are blue counties. You've seen an explosion in the murder rate within blue counties. And blue counties, the murder rate is is much, much higher. It's almost seven out of 100,000, whereas in red counties, it's about four out of 100,000. That's the first point. The second point, that really drives home kind of the absurdity of this argument that, oh, you know, gun violence is a red state problem, is the correlation, that's a different correlation that we could talk about in a second, is the correlation, or should I say the negative correlation, between gun ownership and the murder rate. So this is a chart that shows the the um, br- breakdown by state of the percentage of gun ownership within the state. So to explain it for those that are listening on audio rather than watching, the further to the right on the chart that you go, the higher the gun ownership rate is. So it starts with 0% and it goes all the way up to like 65%. Alaska, you know, Arkansas, Montana, Wyoming, West Virginia, Idaho, these are states that have very high percentage of gun ownership. In fact, every single one of these states, a majority of their population owns a firearm. And then when you look at states like Delaware, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey, it's a very small number of people that own a firearm. It's like 10% or less. So there's a big difference there, right? In New York, 10% of the population owns a firearm, whereas in Alaska, it's like over 60%. And yet, you would think, obviously, using the logic that that you were talking about earlier, especially with the idea that like, oh, well, gun violence yeah. is high in Chicago because people yeah. might be are, buying Are guns them. the problem? Yeah. yeah, right? So theoretically, you would assume that more guns equals higher gun deaths, right? But instead, when you actually do a, um, when you actually run the numbers and, and you do, you know, you basically do a regression analysis, what you see is it's, it's not a very strong one, but it is nonetheless a weak correlation between gun ownership and the murder rate. What this means statistically is that technically, and again, it's not, you could argue that it's not statistically significant, but even the fact that it's not statistically significant is itself significant here, Yeah. right? Technically, the higher the gun ownership rate in the United States, the lower the murder rate. Yeah. 
and this is, by the way, by state as well. So this, this, and, and in more ways than one, refutes the biggest argument that you see in terms of where the murders are taking place. So I, I think that we've put to bed the idea that that you know America's gun violence problem is actually really a red state problem more than anything else. No, it's a blue county and increasingly a blue city problem. And the reason I say it's a blue city problem is because that that same report that I was hinting at earlier. Um, from the Crime Prevention Research Center shows that the overwhelming majority of murders, gun murders in the United States, take place in 2% of all counties. Yeah. And that's actually going up in the sense that it's getting more concentrated with time. They actually— the, it was, uh, Let's read that here. Scroll, scroll down. Scroll back up. Okay. Scroll back up. I want to read this. Murders in U.S. are very concentrated. 2% of counties, 2% of counties had 56% of the murders in 2020— 52% of U.S. counties had zero murders, all right? Zero murders. And this was in the so, middle of a crime spree. Yeah, this is in the middle of a crime spree. And, and, and look, there's, there's, another, there's, another, there's another piece of analysis or statistic that I think needs to be brought up, um, brought up at this point. And that is the percentage to how hungry you currently are and how much you need good ranchers, beef, poultry, pork, and wild-caught seafood, Right. So if you're if you're super hungry, like you need it now, and the good news is, is that good ranchers will deliver it directly to your door. Now, if we want to talk about shady statistics, if we want about shady analysis, did you know that when you go into the grocery store and you see the American flag on that piece of meat, that steak you're about to buy, there's a good chance, there's a very good chance that that beef was raised in a feedlot in a foreign country with God knows what happening, then brought over here. And as long as it went through some of the processes within the United States, they are free to slap that American flag on it. And you think you are getting a genuinely raised in America steak. You're not, right? You're not. In many cases, you're not. But Good Ranchers does guarantee that. When you buy beef from Good Ranchers, when you buy poultry, when you buy pork, right? When you buy that wild-caught seafood, when you're doing, you are getting a, you are getting a cow that was raised in the United States by the ranchers that work in coordination with good ranchers in order to get the finest quality beef sent to your door. And if you sign up right now, if you go to goodranchers.com, you put in promo code Nick, not only are they going to give you the best raised American beef, poultry, or poultry, pork, and um, wild-caught seafood delivered to your door, they are also going to give you a pound and a half of free bacon with each order in your subscription for four years, right? You sign up for four years, you get free bacon with your order for four years. Why? This is all in honor of February because it's leap year, which means you better act like pronto, like right away because February is going away. I don't know if you know this, but Fe February is about to end. So you need to jump on this deal right now. Go to goodranchers.com, put in promo code Nick. You're going to get that subscription deal and you're going to get real raised in America meat. And that's what you want. All right, let's go ahead and get back to it. Um, the next thing I want to talk about here is, is so we, we've kind of talked about, again, what is happening. We've talked about how the majority of the gun violence is uh, suicides. We've talked about even when we look at the the murders that are taking place, it's all concentrated in a relatively small uh, amount of counties around the United States, and it's it's concentrated in blue areas, right? They, again, you can always manipulate the statistics to try to show something else, but the the fact of the matter is that a majority of these crimes are taking place in urban areas, and a majority of the murders are taking place as a result of gun violence, um, narcotics things of that nature, right? That is that is really where you hit the scourge. Now, the next thing that we want to look at real quick here, because this is going to coincide with the sort of gun laws that we're seeing is, is okay, 
We know we know what's happening. We know where it's happening. We know who's doing it. Now we need to look at what are they using. So let's go ahead and look at bring up that um, bring up that that graph if you would, Christian, that shows um, you know the the yeah here we go. This is a graph that basically shows the murders that are taking place. I believe this is on an annual annual yeah uh, yeah basis. this is I mean it's it's a really big chart. I think I've got another one that I can show, but th- this so is, let me yeah let me read this off real quick. Okay. It's it's which weapons are most commonly used for homicides. So the FBI collected data on the weapons used in three thirteen thousand nine hundred twenty two homicides across the United States during twenty nineteen. 10,258 of these homicides were committed using a firearm and only 364 of those were committed using a rifle. So when you break it down, 600, 600 of the deaths, right, were hands, feet, etc. This one blows my mind, right? Like 1,591 were other weapons. This included everything from like hammers, baseball bats, you know, fire, whatever. 1,591. Um, 6,365 were handguns, 3,326 were firearms, type unknown, 1,476 were knives or other cutting instruments, 200 were shotguns, and only 364 were rifles. Why do I bring this up? Well, in part because if you look at the people that are saying, we're going to do this assault weapons ban, they're not even going after the 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 firearms. Like if you were if you were just doing causal analysis and you were saying, okay, I want to stop gun violence then theoretically you would think you would be going after the ones that are actually involved in the most instances of gun violence but they're not they're going they're doing these, they're starting off with assault weapons ban and i say starting off very deliberately and i'm going to be able to justify that statement in just a moment they say that so basically what they're saying is like okay if we look at the 2019 numbers and, and let's just assume it's higher for for 2024 um, okay so out of the out of the you know whatever um, thousands of of uh, instances of gun violence, you're going to go after the ones that probably make up less than 5% total. That's the ones you're going after. And, and the reason why I say they're going to start there is because of what I talked about earlier with respect to that whole assault weapon, with respect to that whole weapon of war. When they when they conjure up these images in your head, your automatic thought is, why would any citizen need that, Right. So let's say you're not just openly hostile to firearms. Maybe you think, well, I understand why someone might need a handgun for self-defense. Or I understand why someone might need a hunting rifle or a shotgun for hunting. Oh, that makes sense to me. Okay, we, we can let them have that. Okay, but the handguns are the ones that are primarily being used in a lot of the murders and certainly a lot of the suicides. And so the question is, is that if they're really after gun violence, why are they only targeting this narrow group? Well, because I'll tell you this much, they're going to target that narrow group and they're not really going to affect anything with respect to gun violence. Do you think they're going to go back and decide, oh, well, I guess we were wrong? Or do you think they're more likely to come and say, oh, and this is why we also need to ban these? And, and the reason why I want to bring this up in this particular moment is because so often when someone like me says, I don't think they're going to be satisfied with this. I think this is just, they're just basically getting people used to the idea of the government coming in and confiscating your property or, or making it illegal to own it is because they're going to go after the other things. And then after a while, people are like, well, this is just the natural progression. So that's what I find so problematic. And in fact, when I got in a floor debate with the delegate that was carrying the bill that was going to ban assault uh, weapons, I pointed out that the way he organized his bill in order to pre- in order to prevent confiscation is he said that if you already own them, you're fine. You just can't buy any in the future. Or excuse me, I take that back as long as they were manufactured before a certain date, so what we call pre-ban, you could buy all you wanted. Just not anything manufactured after that. 
And when I pointed that out to him, I said, isn't it true that every single thing that's still in existence, and in fact, everything that hasn't even been sold yet that's still in existence can still be bought, can still be purchased, can still be used, can still be carried, the whole thing. Like, isn't that true? And he goes, well, if the delegate would like to add a friendly amendment banning more, I would be all too happy. And I looked back at him and I said, I am so glad you're finally being honest about what you really want, right? Because you didn't want to just stop at this. It wasn't all this bill does. It's like, no, 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 all this bill does, but you'll be back because you want more. So it never, it never ends up stopping with what you claim to want. And every time I say you actually want more than you're being honest about, I get told, I'm, oh, no, that's not true. They don't really want that. Nobody wants to take your guns. They just want common sense gun control. Okay, well, you're taking part of the guns here and you're banning other ones. And the moment I said, well, aren't you leaving all these other ones in circulation? The response was not, well, no, that would be a bridge too far. The response was, well, if you're cool with it, so are we. So that's problematic, right? Once again, that shows you that you are being marketed a particular viewpoint or a particular policy, but in reality, they actually want something more. So here, here's the question I want to get into now. Oh, and th this goes back into the mass shootings, right? Because the mass shootings, for very obvious reasons, are one of the things that, that cause people to say, we've got to do something about this, right? And I don't think anybody disagrees that we need to do something about mass shootings, because they have increased exponentially. The question is this, going back to the original thing that we asked at the beginning, are guns the problem? I wanna, I wanna play you this clip real quick because I got, I got asked this question about guns and, and potentially banning guns in the United States by a very nice uh, young woman. She's called The Shepherdess. Uh, she has a YouTube channel where she talks a lot about homesteading and some other things, but she asked me this question about banning guns. And one of the things that I talked about, I said, if we want to, if we're trying to suggest that guns are the problem, well, then I, I have a question. Why is it that in the areas where gun concentration is highest, this doesn't seem to be the same problem? Why is it that I'm old enough to remember when people would drive to school, to school, with a rifle rack, with shotguns and rifles in the back of the truck, go to school, get out of school, get back in their trucks, and then go hunting? And yet there was no mass shootings at schools. We didn't have we didn't have this pandemic of school shootings. I'm old enough to remember a time where students had shotguns in the rifle rack in their pickup trucks, and that way when school got out, they went hunting. No mass shootings. The causation correlation is okay. Well, the gun equals the shooting. No, we need to look at why has there been such a, a diminishing of of the value of human life, and then how do we properly address that culturally? And if the only way you can think of to properly address it culturally is to disarm people that did nothing wrong, then what you're ultimately telling them is that one, you're going to provide for their security. Okay, well, the government has done a real bang-up job of, of making sure that happens. Two, you're not assuming any responsibility as the politician if they get hurt as a result of your policy. And three, what you're saying is that your rights and your civil liberties and your ability to defend yourself are reliant completely on whether or not somebody else abuses their rights. If your rights are forfeit the moment somebody else abuses theirs, you don't have any rights. What you have is privileges that the government will give to you and take away whenever they want. And that has horrible implications across the board for a free society. So why, why is that? If, if once upon a time, if in the not-so-distant future, not only could you own firearms, but minors had access to firearms and can actually bring them on to a school parking lot, go to school, leave, and then go out and hunt without hurting anyone, why is it now? Right? If, if for decades that was a possibility, if for decades in American history, you know, over a hundred years in American history, that was something that could be done and it didn't manifest itself in massive school shootings. What changed? 
And I think, it's, I think that's an important question to answer if we're serious about addressing the problem as opposed to using the problem for an excuse to take away firearms. Because someone that has already decided that firearms are the problem, anytime a firearm is used, that automatically becomes an excuse. They don't need to ask a bunch of questions of how it was used, what was the purpose, what led up to it, what were the underlying circumstances. They don't need a gun violence statistic, right? That's why, that's why I pointed out earlier, the same people that will talk to you about how, how horrified they are about gun violence have set up the statistics in such a way to where if you get murdered because you didn't have a firearm to defend yourself, that improves their statistics. If you prevented yourself from getting murdered by shooting someone who was trying to kill you, that hurts their gun violence statistics, right? That's not the sort of incentive structure we want to see. And yet that's how it exists when you, when you take these broad statistics and you actually look at individual use cases. But we can see right here by this uh, stat, by this chart that, that Christian has brought up, that um, is this one, this one's um, active shooter incidents have become uh, more common in the US in recent years. And you can see where there has been a, a sizable jump in active shooters. And a lot of this unfortunately targets, again, schools, it targets areas that are vulnerable, it targets gun-free zones, because there's a high degree of probability that you can go into these areas and shoot people who you know won't be armed and for which you know there won't be any sort of security present or there, there's a, a lower probability of having security present. And that's where we see them being targeted. They're what we would have called in the military soft targets. Now, here's my question. And, and this, is, this is kind of twofold. The first one is, if you want to protect something value, like valuable, do you put a sign out that says you're not allowed to hurt the people in here or you're not allowed to steal from the people in here or you're not allowed to shoot the people in here or you're not allowed to carry weapons in here or do you have armed security and locks? Well, well let's ask the question. When you go to Congress, do you have armed security? Yes. Do you have metal detectors? Yes. Do you have different security protocols that you have to follow to go into the building? Yes. Okay. Thankfully, more and more schools are starting to adopt those now, but this idea that the way to protect a school is just put a gun-free zone up there or a drug-free zone up, whatever you want to put, the idea that, oh, well, I, I, guess, we, I guess we've done something substantive to protect children now. No, I, I don't think you have. And, and the way I know that you know you haven't is because when the same politicians pass that gun-free zone bill, you know, they don't do the same thing for their buildings where they just say, oh, gun-free zone, that's sufficient. They may put up that sign, but then they put in armed security, metal detectors, and people to protect them. But by the same token, when we say we need school resource officers, we need more people to provide security at the schools, people can say all day long, it's horrible that we need that. I agree. But are you going to protect your children, at least to some degree, the same way you protect your politicians? And the answer, unfortunately, from a lot of the people that carry this sort of gun confiscation or gun banning bills is they don't want more money for SROs. We have a bill in, in the Virginia General Assembly this year, the same people that are passing all kinds of laws affecting private citizens on what they can own, what they can carry, how they have to lock up their uh, firearms, how they have to lock up ammunition, all that stuff, are the same ones that actually carried legislation to cut to cut the available, the available grant funding for school resource officers. Now, they're going to say, well, it's because that money was still there. It hadn't been used. Yeah, one of the reasons that it hadn't been used is because they were requiring a school resource officer to go through all the same training as a typical law enforcement officer. And what we said is, 
We don't need a we don't need a school resource officer who is who is not arresting anybody, who is not investigating crimes. We don't need them to do that stuff. We just need them to provide security for the school. And so we should set up a separate category in order to allow that to happen. They voted against it. So they made it more difficult to actually provide school resource officers and to be qualified for the grant money. And then when all the grant money couldn't be used as a result, they cut it. At the same time that they gave a pay increase to, and an overall increase to guess who? Capitol Police. Now look, I'm grateful that they gave that those resources to Capitol Police. But when it came to their security, they wanted more police officers. They wanted them better paid, better trained with the right equipment. When it came to school resource officers, they cut the funding for the grant program. Someone's going to have to explain the priorities there if you're really trying to protect kids in a vulnerable situation. The other thing that I think we have to look at here, and this is something that we have talked a lot about on, on previous episodes, is why do school shootings, why do shootings, these mass shootings take place? Now, the one that we saw with respect to Kansas City, the reason why the reporting started on that and almost immediately dropped off. Um, in fact, there was this, this funny interview with uh, Ann Coulter on Bill Maher where Bill Maher was like, well, we don't know who's done the shooting at the at the Super Bowl uh, parade yet. And Ann was like, oh, we kind of know. And, and he goes, well, what do you mean? She goes, if it fit the narrative that the media wants, we would know all about it. It doesn't, It therefore, we don't know all about it. Therefore, it doesn't fit the narrative the media wants. Therefore, we do know about it. And, and Bill, <laughs> Bill Maher was like, oh, okay, well, you've got special powers. I guess those special powers was paying attention over the last five years of watching the press and how they cover shootings. Because the reason why you're not hearing much about it is because it wasn't some deranged person with an AR-15 showing up to try to kill as many as possible. It looks like it was gang violence. And since it doesn't fit the media's narrative, you're not really hearing much about it. The same reason why you have all sorts of young men dying in inner cities as a result of gang violence, and you don't hear a lot of reporting on it because it doesn't fit the narrative. What narrative? The narrative to justify gun confiscation and banning, right? It's, I, I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm taking a huge logical leap here. Nick. But if we also look, and this is another, this is another important thing to consider. If we also look at the people who deliberately target large crowds of unarmed people to hurt them, we come to the conclusion that there's some sort of mental illness associated with this. Now, here's what I want you to consider when it comes to many. In fact, I think most of the last rash of mass shootings, what you find is some pretty strange motivations. Some of them have been racial. Many of them have been committed by people that identified as trans or non-binary. The one that took place at the Christian school, there's a reason why, you think there's any confusion on why we don't have that manifesto printed everywhere? Let me ask you this question. Let's say some sort of deranged, you know, MAGA hat wearing white supremacist walked in and shot up everything and had a manifesto. How long do you think it would have took us to actually get every single page of that manifesto plastered across every single media outlet out there? Nick, it's happened multiple times. We've all heard about Dylan Roof, who was a white supremacist that shot up a black church in South yep. Carolina, a few, not many, a few years ago. Um, remember the, uh, the shooting in New Zealand? That took yeah. place a few years ago, right before the government decided the response was going to be, we're going to confiscate all guns. Well, yeah. the guy had a manifesto. He was a he was a hardcore, like, white identity politics. He, he like, self-identified as, like, an eco-fascist or something yeah. like that. And 
And he said in that manifesto, I am doing this because I want to start a race war and yeah. I want the government to try to confiscate guns because I feel like if that happens, it will increase the odds that the people will rise up against the government and, and somehow we'll, we'll get a white ethno state. Like yeah. this guy obviously was deranged, but yeah. he also, he wasn't just like a, a complete lunatic. He had like, like a specific set of motivations and the media made very sure that his works and his manifesto got out there and anybody could go out there and read it. Right, because yeah. it aligned very well with it with the particular narrative that not just what but, he was trying to push, what they were trying to push. But we still don't have. I mean, th there's been parts that have been leaked by Stephen Crowder about the the manifesto from the the trans activists that ended up shooting up, you know, a bunch of kids at a Christian school. The, the reason that manifesto hasn't gotten out is because the manifesto contains exactly what you what we would expect it to contain. Yeah. It's as simple as that. We well, we and, know and this, exactly what's in that manifesto. And, and, and here and here's the issue that we're running into. There's a reason why the preponderance of people engaging in mass shootings, the preponderance of people engaging, they're, they're not a bunch of like, they're not a bunch of gun-toting right-wing conservatives. That's not who's doing this, right? More often than not, it's people on the left, right? Sometimes they're just crazy. But other times you you actually see flavors of of left wing ideology, and here's what I want to say. Here's what I want to say to this. That's going to be very controversial. Is should we really be surprised? Should we really be surprised when a political ideology, which seeks to def, to um, divide people based off of oppressor and oppressed, when that same ideology goes into college campuses and whatnot and says? If you articulate a particular opinion, which I don't agree with, that constitutes as violence. That's an act of violence. Because what that does is it sets up the moral framework for them to be able to respond. So if you say, I believe gender is binary, I believe sex is binary, and they say that's an act of violence when you say that because you're saying I don't exist, or you're saying I shouldn't exist, or you're advocating genocide against me. Well, now when they use violence against you, that's just them defending themselves, right? That's just them punching or shooting a Nazi. I don't think we should be shocked that at the same time that we see significant increases in mental health issues, primarily diagnosed by those that have left-leaning political ideologies, I'm not saying if you're left-leaning, you're automatically you know, suffering from mental health issues. I'm seeing that statistically speaking, and we have showed the numbers multiple times on this channel, if, if you are, it, the higher percentages of people struggling with mental health issues are on the left. Now, again, I'm not claiming that all mass shootings are a result of left-wing ideology. I'm not claiming that all mass shootings, I'm not claiming that if you're left-wing, you support mass shootings. I'm not doing any of that. I know that's how the press will try to spin this because they've tried to do this to me before. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, is that I'm tired of people ignoring all of the shootings that take place that don't fit into their political narrative. I, I'm tired of them ignoring the, the mountain of those instances. And then when something happens over because some sort of deranged racist does something, they point to the right and say, ah, see, I got news for you. Racism it is not a part of conservative ideology. Racism is not a part of libertarian ideology. I, I know that the press likes to make it out to be that way. I know that Democrats like to suggest that if you're a Republican, you must be harboring some deep-seated racism. But I would just remind everybody, once again, historically, the party of racism throughout American history has not been the Republicans. It's not been, it's been Democrats. 
they get mad every time I say that. Just show me where I'm wrong. How about that? Show me where I'm wrong in the long history of the Democratic Party. Even today, which political party does the most work to try to divide people along racial lines? It's the Democratic Party. It's the left. The left is the one that is constantly seeking to put people into collective little groups in order to engage in group identity, in order to affect the consolidation of political power, in order to get what they want by using the force of government. I don't think I'm saying anything that is wildly <laughs> out of bounds here. No. And some people, some people hear that message and they think, well, this is a way that we work collectively in order to win elections. Other people think, oh my gosh, people are trying to commit acts of genocide against me and I need to defend myself. And then they go do something crazy and violent. That's what I'm claiming. That's what I'm claiming. I think a lot of the people that use a lot of hyperbolic language with respect to you're committing trans genocide if you don't believe that a man becomes a woman simply because they declare themselves to be so. If you're gonna, if you're gonna categorize that as genocide and you're gonna use those terms, don't be surprised when somebody who's got a lot more screws loose than you do decides to engage in an act of violence because they really do believe that they're under threat from society as a whole. Um, Nick, you know, you you brought up earlier, um, very briefly, right, right when you were introducing the the clip that um that you recorded with the shepherdess, you brought up very recently that like you know it was within living memory, obviously not for me and Hamilton, but it, it's within living memory for like my parents and certainly your parents. That like, you know, there was once a time when kids would go to high school and the guns would be in the rack of their truck, yeah. right? And then they'd, they'd finish the day and they'd go out and go hunting or go shooting. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And there, were, there weren't school shootings. There weren't mass shootings for that matter. No. Well, um, there, there was a book that was uh, written by uh, actually a baseball statistician named Bill James uh, called The Man from the Train. And he, he, he tracked what is arguably... The, the greatest unsolved murder spree in American history that took place 100 years ago, where there was this guy that crisscrossed the country and he just murdered whole families using an ax. Mm -hmm. And this was like in the very late 1890s and early 1900s. Like the first murder took place in, I think, like 1896 and the last one took place in like 1914 or something like that. And, and we don't know what happened to the guy who did it. We technically don't even know who did it. He has a theory, but the murders were never solved. And yeah. The reason that this was like such a sense, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this was a huge sensation when it was taking place. It was like 120 years ago. Huge sensation. It was like plastered in newspapers all over the place. It was, it was like a nationwide manhunt for whoever this person was that was going through states like Iowa and Oregon and Washington and just murdering whole families in the middle of the night because this was unheard of at the time. And, and keep in mind, this was a time period where everybody had a firearm. Yeah. Every, especially in these Western states where most of these axe murders were taking place, every household had a firearm. The most common firearm was the Winchester repeating rifle, mm -hmm. right? It, it was everywhere. Gun ownership was, was, was widespread. And yet the murder rate in the United States was very low. It was yeah. like below two out of a hundred thousand and the mass shooter rate. Well, there was no such thing. There literally was no such thing. You would have, the, the reason that we know that the tales of like these famous people, like, you know, Wild Bill Hick Hickok and, you know, Billy the Kid and stuff like that and the shootout of the OK Corral is because there was actually so few instances of things like this, right? Yeah. You know, the typical Western movies where you would have the shootout in front of the saloon and stuff like that. And, you know, a gang of bad guys would be killed. Those were actually quite rare. And there's a reason that we know the names of these people because they weren't that common. And so like when this murder spree was taking place, 
there there was so much attention to it because such a thing did not exist in society. Yeah. There, it just wasn't a thing. If if the Western axe murderer came back today, it would just be a typical weekend in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so like <laughs> the, the reason I bring this up is because we we kind of we live in this environment now where we're just kind of conditioned into thinking, oh, it's just typical for mass shooter events to take place, or it's just typical for the murder rate to be what it is, or the suicide rate to be at any, you know, the highest rate in 80 years. This was not a thing 50 years ago. And guess what? 50 years ago, assault rifles were a thing. You could yeah. get an assault rifle 50 years ago. So it's yeah. not even just 100 years ago, oh, the Win- Win- Winchester repeating rifle. The technology ha- has advanced since the 1880s and 90s, right? By the time you got into the 1950s, you could get a you could get what would be classified as an assault weapon today. Why did we not have school shootings every weekend in the 1950s? And, and I think that's I, I think the larger argument here is that we have to look at how did people view human life and their role within society, and how do people view their own kind of identity and purpose versus how they do it today? And and people have a ton of theories, whether it's violent video games or detachment that takes place sometimes with respect to social media. And, and I think that all of those things are can be contributing factors, but I, I think that we have to acknowledge, and, and again, th- I'm not saying that if you're left of center, you're more prone to engage in a mass shooting. W- what I'm saying is that there are certain conditions which I think tend to lead to people engaging in acts of violence because they're able to morally justify it. And, and I don't think you can ignore some of the implications with respect to things like postmodernism, with respect to things like critical theory, with respect to things like oppressor versus oppressed. Um, I don't think you can ignore those things because again, when you tell someone that, hey, you are the bad guy because of immutable characteristics, well, that's problematic. When you then say that if anybody voices an opinion which differs from yours, it's an act of violence against you, well, that sets up a moral conundrum, right? When, when, you, when you essentially suggest that the people who disagree with you don't disagree with you because they might have a different perspective or a different understanding of the data, but because they're evil and they have evil intent, well, that's problematic. When you say that there's no such thing as objective truth and therefore no such thing as objective morality, well, that's problematic. Right, I, 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 I've talked about this before where I, I got asked a question in college and we were writing a paper and it was on intelligence. And it was this whole question of what is the biggest ethical crisis facing the intelligence community? And everyone was saying things like rendition or enhanced interrogation techniques or, and I said, it's, it's gonna be postmodernism. And my professor was like, what do you mean by that? I said, well, think about it. If you raise a generation to believe that there's no such thing as objective truth, that there's no such thing as objective morality, and you're saying that it's all subjective based off of your own perspective or your lived experience or your desire to achieve self-actualization, then what you're doing is you're opening up a new moral framework where essentially people can do whatever they want provided that it gets them to that self-actualization. Because if you being your truest self is the most important thing possible, then anyone standing in the way of you being your truest self is now a problem that has to be removed because they're the bad guy. And I think you see this manifesting itself in our politics and the way we interact with one another. And by the way, just so I'm just so nobody thinks I'm letting one side or the other off in this 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 discussion, 
about otherizing entire groups of people. I'm actually, I'm watching more and more people on the right come up and say, well, fine, if you're going to categorize me as evil based off of my skin color or the fact that I'm straight or the fact that I'm whatever, fine. If that's the sort of world you want to live in where I'm the bad guy and you're the good guy, well, then in my world, I'm the good guy and you're the bad guy. And the only way we can adjudicate our differences is through violence. So my problem is not just that these philosophies encourage the sort of violent behavior that I think we're starting to see manifest itself, especially in the sort of mass shootings where you have an individual that is essentially trying to achieve either in some sort of internal emotional vindication or some sort of political objective by causing you know, mass death among innocent people. I, I don't think you can look at that taking place and ignore the philosophies which tend to inform it. I also don't think you'll be able to ignore the backlash that you may end up experiencing as a response to it. And so when we get into the question of how do we deal with this issue, I'm going to put forward a couple of things. I'm going to put forward a couple of ideas here. One, I think we have to acknowledge that if you really want to stop violence, I don't care what implement you use, whether it's a gun, it's a knife, your fist, don't care. If you really want to stop violence against innocent people, then you have to start asking yourself, what sort of moral rules are we living in in a society where more and more people find themselves, believe it justifiable in order to engage in those sorts of activities? And if you can't draw a straight line back to something, well, then I would suggest to you that maybe it's not the perfect time to start taking rights away from other people. It's certainly not a good idea to take away the rights and the abilities of other people to be able to defend themselves when you can't seem to figure out or acknowledge that a lot of the people that are carrying out these acts of violence seem to have adopted certain philosophies that I just mentioned. I think the other thing that we have to take into consideration here, and this, this goes to the heart of it, we'll, we'll kind of close with this section, and that is, is there any good reason for a private citizen to own some of these weapons. And, and I really want to direct this part. I really want to direct this, this part to anybody that is watching this that is willing to give a hearing. Maybe they just don't understand this and they, they really want to hear a, a, an argument that makes sense to them. Maybe they're in the United States, maybe they're overseas. Is there any reason for a citizen to own a firearm? I would say yes, there's many. And hunting is not even close to being the most important reason. One of the most important reasons is your ability to be able to defend yourself. If the state, right, if the government tells you, who maybe is not as strong, not as fast, not as tall, not as good a fighter, right, maybe you just don't have the physical ability to, to defend yourself against a, a stronger attacker. If they tell you that you are now not permitted to have the means to be able to defend yourself, but then they're not also going to take responsibility for your defense then they have intentionally left you vulnerable. Now, they may believe that, well, you'll be safer because that other person might not be able to get his gun as well. I got news for, for the government. I got news for the politicians that would say that. A 120-pound female, okay, is vulnerable to a 200-pound male whether they have a gun or not. The firearm in the hands of the woman is what all of a sudden gives her the ability to be able to provide for her own defense regardless of the circumstances. And if the government proactively intervenes to take away that right from her, the government leaves her vulnerable. And since the government can't provide for her protection 24 hours, I would think it makes the government culpable when all of a sudden she's harmed by someone that she otherwise might have been able to defend herself against. That's the first step. This basic 
this basic right of each individual to be able to engage in self-defense. And for anybody that thinks that this doesn't happen much, I want to show you another way that the media manipulates statistics in order to try to give you the impression that this doesn't happen. Because a lot of times the media will say things like, there was you know, 30,000 gun deaths last year and less than 200 of them or less than 100 of them were somebody using a firearm to shoot somebody in order to defend themselves. Well, that's an interesting way to measure whether or not a firearm was useful in defending yourself, right? I got a question. It, it would be tragic if I had to shoot someone in order to defend myself. But in many cases, pulling out the gun and saying, get out of my house or pulling out the gun and saying, get out of my store or pulling out the gun and saying, no, you're not going to beat me again. The mere presence of the firearm is sufficient to prevent that assault, that battery from taking place in the first place. But if the press isn't going to actually gather those statistics, well, it makes it very convenient for them to give the impression that people aren't actually using firearms in order to defend themselves or protect themselves. But if you actually broaden it out to include those categories where someone used a firearm and the mere presence of it was sufficient to protect themselves, now all of a sudden the statistics go up to on the conservative side, 500,000 times a year within the United States that someone was able to use a firearm to prevent themselves from becoming a victim of crime. Well, I, I don't know about you, but that's quite a few. And I think, it, I think all the people that had a firearm in that instance were probably very appreciative that their rights had not been denied to them by a government who clearly wasn't there in time to show up to help them who clearly wasn't there to be able to prevent that action from taking place in the first place. No, it fell to them. So that's the first point. The, the other point that I want to bring up here, and this is the one that I think really troubles people, um, both in the United States, but also, also overseas. And this is the idea that the reason why the Second Amendment was set up, and if you read the Second Amendment, it was written carefully. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There's two things there. Some people will say, well, that just means a well-regulated militia. That's the National Guard. I'm like, okay. So what, what you honestly believe happened here is that a, a free people that used private gun ownership to overthrow a dictatorial government then wrote the Second Amendment to say that only the government should own guns? Does that even, I mean, let's just be logical here. Regardless of how you feel about that, that is not a logical interpretation of the Second Amendment. What you need to understand is that the militia, a well-regulated militia, in, in the 1700s when they're using this terminology, the militia was made up of the people. It was private citizens. They weren't soldiers. They weren't paid soldiers. They were private citizens. And well-regulated meant they were well-drilled. They knew how to actually operate as a military unit if necessary. But that second part of comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, the reason why they were putting that prohibition on federal power is because they understood in a way that somebody that, somebody that just won a war could understand that for the militia to exist, private gun ownership had to exist. You couldn't have one without the other. This is why recent Supreme Court rulings have recognized an individual right to own firearms. What that also means is that the founders, when they wrote that, acknowledged that you needed your firearm not just for self-defense. You needed your firearm for defense against enemies, foreign, and domestic. And this is the part that makes people feel uncomfortable. It causes them to say, do you honestly believe that private gun ownership 
would be enough to prevent the government from being tyrannical. Like Joe Biden said it best. He goes, you want to take on the, you want to take on the army, you would need, you know, F-15s and nukes. Really? How many F-15s and nukes did the Taliban have, Joe? Before you pulled out US forces after a 20-year conflict and left a bunch of assault weapons behind. They didn't have a single F-15. They didn't have a single nuke. I fully believe this. And, and, I, and, and here's, what I would, here's what I would ask you to just contemplate with me. Because I think we get to a point where people feel like, well, we've, we've, we've grown past this. We're more enlightened than previous societies. Okay. If we are more enlightened than previous societies, then what's your fear of a private citizen having a firearm? If we are more enlightened than previous societies, then can someone please explain to me why the 20th century was the bloodiest century in history by far? It's not even close. If you look at the total number of murders that took place within the 20th century, it dwarfs every other century. And most of those murders took place as a result of not soldiers fighting each other on battlefields. Most of those murders took place as a result of governments using armed soldiers and police to violently oppress their own citizens. I will tell you right now, that is a whole lot harder to achieve when your citizens have firearms and are very determined to remain free. There's a quote, Nick, from uh, Dr. Gregory Stanton from George Mason University, which is in Virginia, actually. Um, he says, during the 20th century, over 100 million people were murdered by their own governments. That is more deaths than from all wars combined. And so I, I would just, I would beg people to recognize something. And, and if you're watching this and you're on the left and you've just, up to this point, you've said, this is all garbage. I would also like to point out that the same people on the left that have repeatedly told us over the last decade that our government's corrupt that our government's racist, that our government set up patriarchal power structures in order to punish minorities at the, to the benefit of, of other preferred populations. You're telling me that's the only people you want to have firearms? That doesn't even work within your own logic. It wasn't that long ago that when Jim Crow was put in place, black families in the United States had to have firearms in order to provide for their own security because if the Klan showed up and they called the sheriff, the sheriff might come to help the Klan. So please don't suggest to me that this idea that you might need firearms to defend yourself either from your own government's lack of action or from your own government proactively working against you is some sort of archaic notion that we've all grown past. It isn't. There are certain things that are fundamental about human nature. And if you want to remain a free society, then I would, I would suggest that one of the only ways to do that is that you have to, one, have a genuine love for freedom and both the personal, responsi personal responsibility and the risk that comes with it, but that you must also possess some basic means for the provision of your own security, for you, for your family, and yes, for your country. And that's why this is so important. And that's why this constant drumbeat of new, new rules, new regulations, which are all designed to target people who are willing to obey the law as opposed to targeting people who have actively broken it, don't make any sense to me. 
that that logic doesn't add up. And so I'm forced to start to question the motivations because the same politicians that brought forward legislation this year, making it significantly more difficult for a law-abiding citizen to be able to have a firearm are the same ones that voted for legislation that made it significantly more easy for someone that had committed an act of violence with a firearm to get out of jail early. Explain that logic to me. Explain the logic where you say, you can't trust the police because they're racist. You can't have a firearm because we can't trust you as a citizen. But we can trust the person that has actually violated the trust of society by using a firearm or some other implement in order to commit an act of violence. We can't trust them to get out of jail early because we think we fixed them now. Someone explain the logic to me because it doesn't add up. It does not add up. Ultimately, I want to live in the sort of society that does two things. One, acknowledges that each free person, each human being has a right to be able to provide for their own defense and a society which actually values human life. Because right now, when I look at the ideologies that are emanating predominantly from the left, not exclusively, but predominantly, I see a society which says, you can ignore reality if it doesn't correspond with your individual wishes for your identity. I see an ideology which says that there is no objective truth, there is no objective morality. There's only the morality that the group or the collective comes up with through political society. I see an ideology which increasingly tells people that if they hear an opinion that they disagree with or that offends them, that that's an act of violence, which sets up a moral framework for them to be able to respond with violence, actual physical violence. I see an ideology which is increasingly creating a generation which cannot make sense of reality and then tells them that the moment they're told something they don't like, they have a right to rebel against it and everyone else better line up and accommodate them or else. You add all those things together and I don't think it should come as a massive shock. Oh, actually, there's two more I want to add to that. When you see an ideology which says that human life doesn't have any value in the womb, when you see an ideology which is increasingly pushing assisted suicide, as a solution to a wide range of things and not just terminal illness. I think that is overall an ideology which has rejected reality, which has rejected morality, and which has rejected the inherent value of human life. And I don't think we should be shocked when that manifests itself in violence directed at the most innocent within our society in order to ensure that the pain is felt by others that is felt by that individual that pulls that trigger or uses that knife or is behind the wheel of that car. And I don't think the solution to the conditions that create those sort of outcomes is to go over to other groups of people that have done nothing wrong, that do value human life, that are trying to follow the rules and just want to be able to have basic implements to be able to provide for their own security. I don't think the solution is to tell them, you don't get to have that anymore. Because I know this much, the government is not going to then fill in and provide the resources necessary to provide for their security. So if anything happens to them, it is directly on the politicians, which told them they weren't able to do it for themselves, while at the same time pushing an ideology, which leads to those sorts of outcomes, leads to the sort of depressing state of humanity where there's no ultimate right or wrong and there's no inherent value in human life. 
All right. Um, this one's going to get an interesting reception. I, I have no doubt that where the comments section is going to be a little bit spicy on this one. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, the, my final thought is this. Uh, I don't want anybody to misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you disagree with me politically, you're fostering violence or ensuring these outcomes. I am saying that ideas do have consequences and nihilistic ideas tend to have nihilistic outcomes. They certainly have nihilistic consequences. So once again, thank you for sticking with us for this episode. We hope it was informative. We hope we answered some of these questions. And again, if you were someone that was watching this to try to get an idea of what's going on and what's an argument from the other perspective, which says and values the idea of individual gun ownership, I hope you found this informative on some level. Um, please let us know in the comments. Once again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for Good Ranchers for sponsoring us. Go to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, take advantage. February's almost over, right? We got new deals coming up in the future, but for right now, you want to get on that deal, promo code Nick. Anyways, thank you very much, and we'll see you next episode.